the things that I respond to, I, I see a few hundred opportunities a year. I invest in two or three. What's common about those two or three? It's a five part checklist that I have to run through in sequence. I look at a startup with the following five, like, like a quarterback taking the snap and then just doing a series of checkdowns. These are the checkdowns. Number one, I start with the market. Is the market suffering from a huge problem either now or in the near future? That automatically rules out anything that's opportunistic. All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we have Ben Wiener joining us from Jerusalem, Israel. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I'm going to give a quick background on Ben. He is the managing partner at JumpSpeed Ventures, a venture capital firm headquartered in Jerusalem, Israel, focused on inception stage companies. Their strategy is focusing uh, is focused on finding companies and entrepreneurs specifically in the one city of Jerusalem where there is a mismatch of supply and demand for early stage venture capital. Since founding in 2014, JumpSpeed Ventures has raised more than $40 million over two different funds with a 5x uh, DPI or distribution over paid in capital track record, uh, which Ben will go over here in a minute. But uh, today, if you want to participate in any of their funds or offerings, uh, it's a minimum check of $400,000 as a new investor. So with that, uh, let's dive in. Ben. Um, Welcome to the show. Talk to us about um, what DPI is first. Like uh, we, we kind of talked a little bit about over the show, but let, let's hop into that track record real quick. What does DPI mean? Why do you use that metric? Why not IRR? Why not? Um, you mentioned another one. Uh, let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. So in venture capital, the, the really the two most important metrics for LPs, uh, investors in the venture capital fund when they're evaluating funds our DPI, which is in plain English, how much cash did I give you and how much cash did I get back? Uh, TVPI is the more complicated metric, which is uh, total value of the portfolio over the cash that was put into the portfolio. So it includes the markups of some of the companies that have not yet been exited in the portfolio. But if you go back to DPI, DPI is quite simply cash out versus cash in. How much cash did my investors give me back in 2013, 2014? How much of that did they get back? So the investors in my first fund, my inception fund in 2013, got five times their money back already from our first exit, which was a, a very significant exit of one of our portfolio companies to Google. Uh, that single exit returned the entire fund over five times to the initial LPs. Um, so that's why I use DPI as the best metric of, as, as my... As a guy that I really look up to, an LP named Chris Duvos says, how much moolah is in the kula? You know, with all the stories that VC tell, um, how much money did I give you? How much money did you give me back? So uh, thankfully, we've been able to return uh, the, the initial fund multiple times to the LPs, and we hope to do that again in the subsequent funds. So uh, you also mentioned that uh, TVPI is a little bit more of a fuzzy number. Uh, so tell us what DVP, uh, TVPI is. And then, like, how, how does that get calculated? And maybe why, why certain VCs focus on that metric versus others? 
Right. So DPI is, uh, you know, we had a portfolio in that first fund of, I don't know, seven companies. One of them got sold. That distribution paid back cash to the investors that put the cash in. It's easy to measure cash in versus cash out. PDPI means, okay, what about those other six companies? How much are they worth today? So some of those were shut down. And some of those, while they haven't been acquired or gone to an IPO yet, have, have, have risen significantly in value because subsequent VCs came in and paid in later rounds much higher prices per share for those companies than when we came in years ago. So on our books, we're carrying those holdings as worth much, much more than what we originally invested in them uh, them at. So that's a that's a book value, that's a markup on paper. And that has to be verified by our accountants, but there are different ways of calculating markups. And it's very much up to the VC manager and their accountants to decide on their own how much that, that holding is worth before it becomes liquid or gets shut down. So we're holding a bunch of holdings in our portfolio at very, very nice markups. And we can include those markups in our calculation of our TBPI. Um, but we're, we're able to make those calculations ourselves, subject to accounting rules. But accounting rules can be fuzzy and you can, you can decide uh, how long to keep a, a holding at high value or whether you need to mark it back down if the market changes. There's a lot of subjectivity there. So I would just caution anybody looking at it at a VC fund like mine, you want to look more closely at the DPI, although the TBPI is important too. When you're talking to a VC fund and they're, they're giving you their pitch about how, mu- you know, how much, you know, how, what their track record is on their first fund, you know, the first flag that should go up if you're kind of new to evaluating VC funds is, okay, maybe this VC fund keeps talking about, oh, we have a TVPI of X. And really that LP should be going in and saying, okay, love that. The current value of your portfolio on paper is X. How much have you actually returned first? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Correct. Absolutely. Love it. Okay. So let's dive into the asset class of venture capital. I, I want to really highlight here, you know, why should someone get really excited about investing in venture capital? I mean, first off, getting a 5x return uh, sounds pretty good. Uh, in what time frame was that? And, and can you share other stories of just uh, of the type of returns that are possible in venture capital? Yeah, well, I'll answer the question first. Like, an investor should get very excited about investing in startups and venture capital, and at the same time, should be absolutely terrified. Because I don't know that there's another uh, asset class as risky as the one that I, that I live in and that I work in every day. So if you take a pool of 100 buildings or 100 stocks in the public market, even if you throw darts at those buildings or at those stocks, some of them are going to, at least half of them are going to be worth something in the next two or three years. I'm virtually sure of that. In startups, if you invest in 100 early stage startups, probably 85% of them won't exist in the next three years. Like they'll be bankrupt, gone, everybody went home and did something else. So the risk of loss is, is significant. The failure rate almost can't be called a failure rate because the presumption is in a room of 100 early stage startups, the presumption is that 98 or 97 of them will fail. It's hard to even call it failure because those people didn't do anything wrong. They're not bad people. They're not crooks or or gamblers. They're very honest, hardworking people. But the startup just didn't work because it's trying to do something incredibly ambitious. 
So those of us who invest in this space have to believe in ourselves and in our ability to, in a room of 100 early stage startups, to be able to pick at least a couple of the ones that are going to ultimately survive, which is a significant, significant minority of all the ones that are started. So you have to be almost a little bit crazy to invest in this space and a little bit and a lot, a lot of self-confidence in some sort of ability to identify what the patterns are or what the characteristics are of the very, very few that succeed. So it takes time to build up that expertise. And that's why I would caution, you know, private investors who want to try to do it themselves. You can do it, but it's also a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's very exciting. It's also a lot of fun to drive down the highway and throw dollar bills out the window to burn them in a pile and roast marshmallows. And and you probably get more out of it um, at the end by doing that because at least you ate a marshmallow. So you have to be really, really careful. We read in the papers and on the internet about all the, the companies that succeed, but behind them are thousands that didn't. And they all looked pretty similar at the beginning. So I would say the, 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 that's a long-winded way to say investors should be excited about venture capital because over time, it's as an asset class returned one of the highest returns of any asset class in history. But that's with a, with a huge caveat that it was the funds that were carefully managed and managed professionally and knew how to pick that were the ones that generated those returns. So I, I would really encourage people to invest in the venture capital space, but not on their own through a professional manager, whether it's me or anybody else who really knows or claims to know what they're doing, because we have a better chance at getting those, those numbers right. An investor on their own is going to be throwing darts at a dartboard that rarely hit. We believe, because we do this all day, that we have a better chance based on our knowledge, expertise, some sort of strategy of finding those few that are going to win. And it's really only those few that are going to generate all the returns that you read about uh, in the press. You know, putting my LP hat on, you know, I think the community that I come from is primarily real estate focused. Uh, And, you know, if you're investing in a real estate project, the likelihood of picking an operator uh, that is going to give you zero dollars of your money back, I'd say is, is low um, or lower than maybe venture capital. Where does, when you invest in venture capital or, or if you're, you know, trying to figure out what, company what fund to invest in what percentage of funds return capital back to you how safe is it for me to invest in yeah so with everything with my whole speech about finding professional managers i the last statistic i saw said that even among professional vc managers over a majority do not even return the money that they raised back to the investors so their dpi is less than one meaning they returned less than $1 for every dollar they took in as a fund. That just shows you that even, even smart people, even hardworking people in the VC space, it's really challenging to, to get consistently high returns just because of the element of risk in starting an early stage startup. It's just, it's almost an irrational risk. And we're looking for those few outliers that are going to carry all the returns. So even professional VC managers, on average, from what I've read, don't even return the fund to their investors. So you have to pick carefully. You have to pick a manager who you believe uh, as an LP has some sort of alpha, some sort of extra skill, some sort of ability, either because of 
the way they invest or where they invest or the type of sector they invest in or because of some other unique magic skill, uh, that they're going to be able to return multiple times that money so that it becomes a worthwhile exercise. So just incredibly uh, sexy from the outside, but really, really complicated on the inside to get it right. And LPs should you know, tread carefully and pick carefully. There are amazing managers out there who consistently you know, beat their peers and return multiple X funds. And, uh, and some very exciting emerging managers or younger managers who, even though they don't have the longest track record, have some unique angle, like I claim to have, where they can claim to be able to generate in the future, you know, multiple X fund returns. If the majority of fund managers are not able to return capital, you would imagine that if you're investing in that space, that the returns, if you do hit, there needs to be some sort of, you know, what is the expected multiple on the top quartile or percentile of, of funds that, that are successful to balance out that risk? The last time I looked, I think top quartile was was met, was said to be over time. Top quartile is three x net and above, meaning that's a thumbnail way of saying three x DPI and above. So if a fund over its lifetime can return three hundred percent of the money, you know, three times the money that it was given back to LPs, net of carried interest and management fees and any expenses, the actual cash returned to the LPs. If it's three times what the what they put into the fund, that should put that fund over time in a top twenty five percent top quartile category. Now there are certain years where things go really crazy, either up or down, and in an up year, even three x won't get you into twenty five percent quartile. It might be you know top quartile might be might not, the bar might be higher, but over time, a good rule of thumb for a VC manager is to try to model the fund or at least be able to predict that if all goes well, we should be able to hit. 3x on the fund. Again, in my first fund, I hit 5x on my first fund. So that's why that fund is already in what I believe for 2013 to be top decile, according to what I saw. But it's really, really hard to do that. And you have to have a specific edge or angle to be able to hit those kind of those kind of returns. What's the craziest multiple you've seen on a, a fund return back to LPs? I think I saw, if I'm not mistaken, I think... Uh, Chris Saka of Lowercase Capital, I think his first fund, which was one of the early investors in Twitter and some other amazing companies, I think I saw a report that he had hit something like 80x or maybe more on the fund. It was a small fund like mine. So, you know, the smaller the fund, the easier it is, quote unquote, to get to higher X. But I believe that I saw 80x. Um, I might even be wrong. It might even be more. I'm sure there are other ones that did even crazier returns. But again, that's just out of the universe knocking the ball, forget about out of the ballpark, out of the galaxy um, returns. So my hat's off to- So you're investing like 100K and that turns into 8 million. I have to take my shoes and socks off to do that math, but give me a second. And I'll <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I love that. Uh, okay, so, so helpful to understand like the risk and reward profile of the asset class, right? What do you think about the future of the asset class? You know, how has it performed over the last decade? How is it? How do you expect it to perform moving forward? Well, listen, I'm an optimist in about technology. I think you know, technology is, you know, the driving force behind much of the progress of the world. So, you know, we get we are privileged as VC managers to be able to fund what we believe are the next great companies to push the world forward in their various spaces. 
So obviously I'm bullish on venture capital and technology as, a, as an asset class. But again, like I said in the beginning, the vast majority of things that are attempted are not going to work. The manager has to be much more than just bullish on the class. The manager has to be able to pick the very, very few that are going to succeed in actually doing what they're trying to do in that class. So as, a, as an asset class, it's amazing. But that doesn't mean that indexing the class is going to be a worthwhile exercise for LPs. I still think it's all about picking. LPs need to pick their managers well, and the managers darn well have to pick their portfolio companies well because, again, the majority is loss. Yeah, so I know that there's been, you know, over the last decade, there's been a huge growth in the number of uh, venture capital funds that exist in the space. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Part of what I think about when I think about the future of the asset class is, you know, are there so many more fund managers and, you know, are, are the number of companies staying level and you've increased the number of, of funds? And so, you know, there's a likely, you know, maybe there's a likelihood that there's a lot of investments happening to companies that really shouldn't be getting venture capital or, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about the space in general of, you know, the world of VCs that you could invest in. What do you think about that? Yeah, listen, I believe in free competition. I mean, it's, it's, anyone's welcome to step into this space and try to, you know, roll the dice and, and win. Um, unfortunately, and I don't want to say anything bad about people that tried to do it or that have tried to do it. I definitely was looked at as an outsider when I started my fund, and I'm sure there are plenty of people then and still today who probably think that I'm, you know, a pretender or that I shouldn't, you know, be investing in the space. I think my track record is starting to show that I that I belong, but certainly for the few, first few years of a new manager's career until they have some exits and some returns, it's really hard to know who's a pretender and who's a contender. And it, it, you just need to wait probably five or 10 years to see if a manager in BC actually knows what they're doing because it takes that long for them to start seeing the results from the seeds that they planted you know, back you know, years ago. So are there too many people in the space? Who knows, probably. Are there too many startups being started? Yeah, probably. But that's the game. The game is lots and lots. I, I keep using metaphors, but like, and I don't want to sound fatalistic, but like, you know, the classic National Geographic, you know, documentary where the mother tortoise comes up on the beach and she lays like a thousand eggs because evolutionarily she knows that only like five or six are going to make it, you know, alive to the ocean. So she needs to, she needs to lay a thousand eggs because 996 of them are going to get eaten by predators and whatever. And that's part of the ecosystem. So we need lots and lots and lots of startups. We need lots and lots of investors to make it competitive so that it keeps us honest as competitors that when we are trying to win an investment or win a deal with somebody looking over our shoulder, we have to behave and, and, you know, and make it, make a decent offer. So I don't mind as a person, as a human, I don't mind that there are so many investors in the space and so many startups in the space. But still, it comes down to picking and, and winnowing out all the you know, garbage and finding the good match between good investor, good startup. And then in our case, good LP, good investor, good startup. What do you think? So what do you think separates a, a more of a novice uh, or beginner um, VC as to someone who's professionally doing it and is in the top quartile like what what separates those what is that what does the day-to-day -day look like for a professional well, there, there's more than one model there's no there's no one way to do it there are some vcs who are amazing because they're just so incredibly networked let's say you know in silicon valley 
which is far, far away from where I sit. Um, you have some, some VCs who, frankly, if you ask them how they pick, they would just say, listen, I'm deeply networked in Stanford and, and I'm, you know, I'm friends with a hundred different founders who sold their companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. The good, the good entrepreneurs are just going to come to me by introduction because I'm deeply networked in their, in their networks. That's amazing. And if you can, if you can just rely on your network to be a great source of deal flow, that's incredible. Most of us can't do that or don't have the networks to do that. So we have to rely on some other, some other way to generate amazing deal flow and then have an ability to pick. So uh, it could be, you know, I'm deeply connected in a certain industry and the people from that industry know that they should turn to me if they have a good idea. Or maybe it's, in my case, like just an economic mismatch of, of lack of many other investors in a specific city. So then after a couple of years, people start to talk about this one guy who's based in the city who has some money that people should come and see. So there could be many, many different ways of generating deal flow and they all can work. And then the second piece is, what's the methodology? Does the manager have some sort of methodology? And there could be many, many different methodologies. The same way that there are for stocks or for real estate you know, assets. What's your angle? Like what, what makes a piece of property or what makes a stock light up for you? And you have to be able to articulate that. So I believe the great managers, and I believe this has been proven by academic research, the better VC managers have an ability to articulate what their methodology for picking is, what the patterns are, what the characteristics are that they're looking for, and they can say it in their sleep. And the ones that suffer or struggle are the ones who are kind of going by gut or by intuition, changing their rules for themselves all the time. And that ends up being a little more scattershot and can produce bad results. So I would say, number one, deal flow should be interesting and unique. They should have some angle to get quality deal flow. And then B, some articulatable methodology for picking of the deal flow they see, how they pick the one or 2% of what they ultimately invest in, or, or 5%, whatever it is, how are they making those choices? How are they making those decisions relative to the stuff that they say no to? Uh, the best ones can articulate their methodology off the cuff in their sleep. And I have a lot of respect for those people. As an LP, you know, let's say you come across you know, two or three different funds and you're starting to interview different managers, how are you, how could I determine whether this person knows it in their sleep versus, versus they, you know, maybe consistently changing it over time? Is it the confidence that they display it with? Is it the, how, how? No, you just ask them, like, what's your methodology for picking? Like, it's amazing to me when I talk to some of my peers, again, I don't want to put people down, but it, but it, it has happened where I'll ask one of my colleagues, like, so how do you pick? And they're, they're like, well, we just invest in great companies. I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? Everybody looks, you know, interesting in the beginning. You know, so again, I, I publish it on my website. Like my criteria are on my fund's website. It's crystal clear for people to look at. Now, there's a lot of nuance behind the broader statements, but at least I'm putting it out there saying, this is how I'm making my decisions. This is what I'm looking for. If you are a startup founder and you believe you have this, please send me an email or, or apply to us. If you don't think you have these things, we're probably not the right fund for you. And I can make that same uh, presentation to my LPs. Like they, they understand within two minutes, three minutes, what I'm looking for in a, in a, a future successful startup and what I'm going to pass on. And again, I've learned that from the VCs that I look up to and admire in the space who can do that as well. So I gravitated as, as I became a young, you know, early 
stage VC for the first time, I needed to get smart about how this is done. The first thing I did was read a ton from much smarter VCs who were articulating publicly like what they were looking for and how they made their decisions. That made me a lot smarter, a lot faster. And many of them have become friends and mentors and even investors uh, alongside me in some of the companies. So I think, again, short answer is LPs need to interview the manager and say, hey, where's your deal flow coming from? Is it unique or interesting and why? And how do you get how do you get the phone call before somebody else? And B, how do you pick? Like, what's your methodology for picking? Um, I think those are the two most important questions to ask a VC after even more, even maybe more important than their track record, because that's going to give you an indication of whether that those that manager or the, that team have some sort of unique angle and some potential ability to outperform in a very risky space. So you've gotten to the point now, what is it? Seven, nine, nine years after you've almost, uh, almost 10 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've gotten to this point where you've launched two funds, you've raised 40 million, which is actually no small feat in the venture capital space, especially when it takes a long time to return capital back to investors and see markups in your companies. You're here now. What was your journey getting into the venture capital space? How did you get here? Well, I kind of fell into it like Alice in Wonderland. I mean, a lot of VCs will say that they took the unusual path. I don't know what the usual path was, but I definitely took the unusual path. So I, I live in Jerusalem, Israel, which is very, very far away from most of your listeners. I did not grow up here. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania, um, and went to school in New York. And, and you know, at, as someone who grew up in a Jewish community, thought, okay, one day I might want to live in Israel. I had studied in Israel between high school and college, like fell in love with the land and then fell in love with a young woman who also wanted to move here. So we, we decided like at a young age that as young marrieds that we might one day want to live in Israel. I had no idea what I, what I was going to do here. And my, my training, my education was as a lawyer. So I went to Columbia Law School in New York. And again, I'm, I'll try to keep the story short, but basically what got us to Israel was after I graduated Columbia, like everybody else, I got recruited by big law firms in New York, but I also applied to and got accepted to clerk as a law clerk on the Israeli Supreme Court in Jerusalem. So we got to live in Jerusalem as a young married couple, just visitors for a year from 96 to 97, clerking on the Supreme Court, which was amazing. And what was most important was during that year, all of our young friends in Jerusalem were involved in high tech. Like they were either startup founders or working for a startup or venture capitalists or investment bankers. It was clear to me that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. So to make a long story short, we ended up going back to New York and then moving back to Israel in the late 90s. I very quickly got involved in startups. I left law and I thought, I'm just going to be like a business development, you know, young American, uh, in, you know, professional in an Israeli startup. And I, I did that a couple of times, like helping the startups on the business development side, like flying around the world and getting into big companies, raising the money, pitching VCs, et cetera. I loved it. The problem was that Jerusalem was always smaller than its neighbor, Tel Aviv. Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. The whole country is the size of a postage stamp. But as, as most of your listeners probably know, as a country, it, it punches way above its weight pound for pound in startup activity. What a lot of people don't know is that the majority, the vast majority of that happens in Tel Aviv, which is a coastal town about an hour away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is uphill and is the capital city, was not really known to be a high tech hub. And it was just assumed by the early 2000s that all the activity was in Tel Aviv and not in Jerusalem. The problem was that that wasn't true. And so years later, as I was turning you know, past my 40s into my early 40s, 
in about 2012, 2013, I was convinced like everybody else that there were just no new startups in Jerusalem. And there were thousands, literally thousands forming every year down the road in Tel Aviv. But I was fortunate to kind of stumble into a group of young entrepreneurs that were forming and, and meeting in the backs of bars and pubs in Jerusalem. It was really like a scene out of Les Miserables. And they were saying, we don't understand what's going on here. We're trying to start these startups. Nobody's talking to us. We're going to Tel Aviv. It's an hour away. But they're looking at us saying, why are you in Jerusalem? The action's here. There must be something wrong with you. And it occurred to me in one of those meetings that there was a, a small but interesting economic opportunity because in a place where there's interesting stuff, but no capital, then supply demand economics, which is very simple, says the buyer gets to basically choose the price. The buyer gets to choose whichever thing they want to invest in and choose the price. And I felt if I had a little bit of money, I could be this very small venture capitalist, you know, big fish, small pond, but this could be a fascinating, really the most fascinating economic opportunity that I had ever seen in my career, which happened to me in my backyard in the city that I had moved to two decades before and, and made my new home. So that's what happened. It was very difficult to, to raise, I should say, very difficult just putting it lightly. Everybody thought I was nuts. Like my, my pitch became, I, I started to take people out for coffee and saying, hi, I want to take some of your money and invest in early stage startups in Jerusalem. And they would say to me, there are none. And I would say, no, no, there really are. I'm finding them. It's really fascinating. They still didn't believe me. And one of my friends said to me at some point, Ben, just stop doing this. You're not going to be able to raise capital. My family is not going to give you capital. Nobody's going to give you capital. You're married with kids. Go get a job. You, you, you're, tr you're, you're trying to raise money for a city where nothing good has happened in 12 years without a track record. So my pitch became, hi, my name is Ben. I have no track record. I've never invested money before. I'd like you to give me some of your hard-earned cash, Mr. LP, which I'm going to invest in one city in the world, which is Jerusalem, where nothing good has happened in 12 years. And they would laugh. And I would say, I know that's what you're thinking, but here's, kind of, here's some of the opportunities that I'm seeing that we could get into those opportunities for pennies on the dollar. And still, it was very difficult. I was fortunate to find a couple LPs who were crazy enough to give me that initial capital. And those are the LPs that just got five times their money back from our first exit. So again, the story has, like what I tell people is, Jump Speed, my fund started off as a joke. And now the joke has a punchline. Like the punchline is the DPI that we've been able to return to those LPs. It was very accidental. Nobody would have hired me to be a VC at, the, at that time. Very few LPs w wanted to give me their money because they thought the thesis was just too ridiculous, too focused, too unusual. And again, the message to listeners would be, okay, what, what does Jerusalem Israel have to do with anybody listening to this podcast? Uh, I'm skipping to the end, but this could be anywhere. This could have been Saskatchewan. This could have been Timbuktu. This could have been you know, Columbus, Ohio. When you find yourself in any asset class, in any part of the world where you believe that you have a mismatch of supply and demand, where you honestly believe that there's some value that's untapped that other people don't see, that could be one of the most golden investment opportunities that you'll ever see. And you have to investigate it further and act upon it if you believe it to be true. So I would say that I was just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and smart enough to be able to identify it as an economic opportunity. And then again, lucky enough to be able to raise the capital to get it started when nobody wanted to believe that, that thesis. So I would say that's a concise story of how this originated. It was even crazier and there were funnier parts of the story, but it was completely laughably ridiculous. 
And sometimes, as Steve Blank says, sometimes the most amazing opportunities start off looking like a joke. And uh, this definitely started off. I, I took it very seriously. I knew that it was real. It was very hard for me to convince people that it wasn't a joke. I very much resonate with that. There's a notion of if you're following the herd, then it's probably already too late, right? Like opportunities are found in these unique places where no one is looking. And once everyone has found that there's opportunity there, it's kind of like the gold rush. At that point, you know, the gold is gone and everyone's just continuing to dig. Yeah, probably the most important framework. I'm a person of frameworks and probably the most important framework that I've ever seen that says what you just said is a framework, famous framework by Howard Marks, who's a famous investor at Oak Tree Capital. It's attributed to him. Maybe he got it from somewhere else, but I've seen it most often in his name. And it's basically that classic business school, you know, matrix, the four part matrix, like four quadrants. And the four, the two axes are wrong and right and consensus and non-consensus. So what he says is, if your investment, it doesn't matter whether it's a stock or a building or a startup or a VC fund. If you're wrong about the investment, obviously you lose. So the two, those two quadrants are, are Xs. On the right side, even if you're right, if what you're investing in is already consensus, if the market already, if the herd is already there, then even if you're right, you're not going to make a lot of money because the stock is already priced up or the building's already overpriced or that startup's being chased by a thousand other investors or, or whatever. So therefore, he says, the insight is, the only place to even begin looking in the first place is in the non-consensus quadrant where you think that you are probably right. And that's very hard to find. It's very hard to be right in the non-consensus quadrant because usually the market's right. But we all know that in many cases, the market just is blind to something or is not aware of something or just isn't in the right place at the right time. You find yourself there when you believe you're in a non-consensus quadrant, but that you are right, there is no feeling like that as an investor. You just get this incredible rush. You feel like you were hit by lightning and you just want to run at that with full force because it's very, very rare. But when it happens and you turn out to be right, it's life-changing. So that's what I felt back in 2013 when I fell into this opportunity. I still feel that when I invest in certain startups that I feel are weird or wacky or other people don't understand or people didn't see them because they were languishing in Jerusalem and the Tel Aviv or outside of the country investors didn't see them yet. It happens very rarely, maybe once a year, twice a year, or for some people once in a decade. But when it does, you have to really embrace it and run after it because it could be that just incredibly amazing opportunity that can yield 100x you know, return. So that's what we look for. And I think that's what I would encourage other investors to look for in whatever field they're in. Try to find... Try to look only in the non-consensus place, but where you think you're, you're, you have an edge. You think you understand something about that quadrant that the rest of the market or the majority of the market doesn't see, doesn't understand, didn't learn yet, et cetera. So yeah, that's, a, that's the, the long-winded way of boiling down what you just said. You don't want to follow the herd. You want to be ahead of the herd. You actually want to be in a part of the field where the herd doesn't even know exists. That's the best place to be if, if you turn out to be right. If you turn out to be wrong, it's a very, very lonely part of the field because nobody ever shows up. If you're right, wow, is that an amazing feeling. How did you get your initial LPs on board? My very first LPs, I, I can't even begin to tell you how crazy it was. Again, anybody smart in 2013 told me no because on its face, the pitch was ridiculous. I had no track record. I've never, I had never managed anybody's money before and I wanted to put their money into one market that most people thought had nothing in it. So the pitch was almost on its face ridiculous. My first few LPs were 
just, uh, I don't want to say, it's hard for me to even describe them, but they, I don't think they really understood what they were doing. And they were so wealthy and just, you know, were throwing, I don't, I don't know, I, they were almost irresponsible in, in giving it to me. And boy, did I make them happy. Like I just returned multiple times that money back to them. But that's what it took. It took, it took people who were, um, I would say, unsophisticated investors to, to put money into my fund. Now, years later, now that I've established myself and I have a track record and I've been able to prove that I did know what I was doing somewhat, my LP base is radically different. I have some of the most unbelievable, sophisticated, incredible people in my fund today. But that's today. In the beginning, none of those people, I think, would have given me money. They needed to see that I had done what I said I was going to do and found what I said I was going to found, uh, find, and then they came into the fund. So the, 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 the makeup of my LP base transformed over the first couple of years from people that were very unsophisticated and just completely risking capital uh, to today where there are many, most of them are just incredibly wonderful, sophisticated, knowledgeable investors who, who really appreciate what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I appreciate them for appreciating what I do. Let's dive into what your true thesis is. I'd love to really understand. So you talk about a supply and demand imbalance in Jerusalem. How are you, you know, that's, that's maybe a pricing strategy or a way that you get outsized returns for the fund. How do you go about deciding which companies inside Jerusalem to bet on? Yeah. So it's a great question. And, and I, again, I have a million caveats. Like what, what I'm going to say applies only to me. And I would not impose my methodology on other investors. I have a lot of respect for other investors who have a different methodology. This is what works for me. And this is what I have found. Um, again, I'm, I'm the whole team. I don't have associates or analysts. So my investors are limited to whatever's between these two ears and whatever I can figure out. And I've learned what I'm good at figuring out and what I'm not good at figuring out. So with all those caveats, the things that I respond to, I, I see a few hundred opportunities a year. I invest in two or three. What's common about those two or three? It's a five-part checklist with, with a five plus one, really a six-part checklist, but let's a five-core-part checklist that I have to run through in sequence. The order is very important. I'll explain why afterwards. But I look at a startup with the following five, like, like a quarterback taking the snap and then just doing a series of checkdowns. These are the checkdowns. Number one, I start with the market. Is the market suffering from a huge problem either now or in the near future? That automatically rules out anything that's opportunistic. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in opportunities. Facebook was an amazing opportunity, but the market wasn't suffering. The market didn't need Facebook. It just turned out that we wanted it very badly, which is fine. I'm just not good at analyzing those things that a market doesn't need. So Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all of those things turned into multiple you know, billion dollar companies. I would not have invested in any of them because I wouldn't have been able to figure out why that was needed by the market. So I need to, number one, the market needs, has a huge problem and needs fixing. Number two, the current solutions for that problem somehow are grossly inadequate, not just suboptimal, but grossly inadequate. So somehow there's a huge dollar value or human life problem in the world. And somehow the 8 billion people on this planet have not figured out how to even come close to solving that problem. That's already very rare. It's usually if there's a big enough problem, there are adequate solutions. Maybe they're not great, but there's adequate solutions because again, the, the secret behind that is as a teeny weeny little startup, 
it's going to be very, very hard to change a market's behavior when there's something that's good enough. Even if the market understands that it's not optimal, to get them to come to your little startup and adopt that solution, it's going to have to be number three, which is the solution is a game-changing, radical, paradigm-shifting, revolutionary, 10x, order of magnitude proposed solution to that horrible problem that has not yet been adequately solved. So that's like the, 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 the first three are like the triple whammy of what I'm looking for in the company, but I'm not done yet. Then, and only then, do I look at the team. The reason why I leave the team for last, even though the team is critically important, is because in my early days, I fell in love with teams who were just amazing people that you'd bring home to your wife, which I did. I brought home to my wife and kids, like, look, look what I found, this amazing person. But they were working on the wrong thing. And the startup failed, not because the person wasn't good or the team wasn't good, but the, the problem wasn't significant enough. So I now force myself to fall in love with the problem, fall in love again with the inadequacy of the solutions and the nature of the solution. And then I need to look at the team. And the team breaks into the last two criteria, which are subjective and objective. Do they have the objective credibility and ability in their space to do what they claim they're going to try to do? Because again, in my space, I'm talking about two people and a dog and an idea. Like there's no, there's no product. There's no revenue. There's no company. I'm going just based on a story. You know, can they, can they do what they say they're going to do? And then the, the, the fifth part is the subjective stuff. Um, just the personality characteristics or the, all the different fuzzy personality things that I'm looking for in the founding team, which is my own set of kind of pseudo psychological analyses that takes the longest to sort of flesh out because you need to meet with them a few times. But I am looking for certain personality traits among the founding team um, that I need to see in order to give them, you know, hundreds of thousands or a million dollars to do like what, what they say they're going to do. And then, so that's, that's the five, this, the plus one, the sixth part is a little, is a little wonky, but I read a lot and basically the most important business book, I don't like a lot of business books. The only one that I feel is the gospel truth about business is a book called Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. It's a very, very important book in our space. It's highly regarded by some of the investors that I hold in the highest regard. That's who I learned about it from. I read that book. I felt it was so important. Those seven strategies are so important that I now incorporate them into my investment analysis. So after I've gone through the first five, huge problem, current solutions inadequate, game-changing paradigm shifting proposed solution by a team with the credibility and ability to do what they say they're gonna do and with the personality traits that I think are needed for a founding team. Then I look at Helmer's seven strategies and say, which of any of these strategies would apply to this company? If I can't find a Helmer strategy that fits the company, I have to pull back and not invest, but it's rare for me to check the boxes on all five and then not be able to find one of his strategies that would support the company once it gets to the market. So that's, that's my methodology. And again, if you woke me up in the middle of the night, I would recite that in my sleep. That's, that's what I'm looking for every time. There's plenty of flexibility in there. There's plenty of nuance there. It's not a, it's not a formula, but it's a methodology. There's still a lot open there for interpretation by me, but I need to be able to check all those boxes in my investment memo when I, when I make an investment. What are the personality traits you're looking for? Uh, that's my secret. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll give, I'll give you a hint though. I'll give you one. I'll give, I'll give you one. And this almost caused me to not invest in a company. I, I, I invest in a lot of, uh, th thankfully, I'm very proud of the fact that in our ecosystem, it's a very diverse ecosystem. So over a third of the companies I've invested in were founded by a woman who is a just a dynamic female you know, personality 
And I'm very, very proud to have supported so many startups that are led by women in Silicon Valley. The numbers are atrocious. It's like two to 3% of funded startups per year are led by a woman. In my stupid portfolio, all the way in Jerusalem, Israel, in this ancient city, it's like 35%. So when there's a female founder, for example, and she has a male co-founder, I'm very sensitive to the dynamic between them because twice or a couple times already, and I'm giving away one of my secrets, but I've seen the guy like mansplaining to his female co-founder or interrupting her or saying what, what she really means is X, Y, Z. Now, this happens in life, and, and, but for me, that's a huge red flag because, for example, if her male co-founder is not respecting her, that's going to not bode well for the future. A, it's just wrong for the world, but B, it's not going to be good for the company over time. And there's been, I wouldn't say that that's the only fatal X, but that's a huge red flag in a, in a first meeting if I see that happening. That's just one sort of negative. On the positive side, I would say founders, the founding team needs to have these three personas that Dave McClure has talked about and other people have talked about, the hacker, the hipster, and the hustler. So you need to, what, what that means in English is who's going to design it, who's going to build it, who's going to sell it. And usually on a founding team, it could be one person with three you know, of those personality traits. Usually that's why we have two or three people on a founding team because consciously or subconsciously, they've divided themselves into those roles. I'm in charge of product. She's the CEO. He's the CTO. That's very, very common because they've intuitively understood one person needs to build it and own the technology part of it. One person needs to be the front person who's pitching it to investors and customers, et cetera. And then the other person is the designer, the one who's owning the product attributes. So typically we'll see founding teams of two or three. I've had you know, cases where one founder had all three of those capabilities and then I was not afraid to invest in a solo founder, but it's rare. Usually it requires a couple people. And then there's all the fuzzy traits of like the, the, the founding team needs to have at least in one person, somebody who's very, very stubborn and very driven, but also somebody who's very curious and open-minded. So those, these things almost conflict with each other. Somebody who's um, a real dreamer but also very rooted in reality because if they're too dreamy, they're not going to be able to pay the bills. If they're too worried about paying the bills, they're not going to worry about taking on the competition. So it's all these like fuzzy things that, and many, many more that you need to see either in the CEO and the, and the key founder, or at least on the founding team so that they balance off each other and create that like yin and yang of the, you know, reality plus dream that startups need to be able to succeed. In my tenure at Techstars, I experienced uh, the methodology or the thought process that uh, the way that you invest in companies is team, 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 market, idea, traction. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen an incredible amount of stories, uh, having worked there for three years and looking at thousands of companies that they, you know, some teams turn, you know, pivot, move to something else. You know, you think about a lot of the great stories like Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there is something to be said for having the right team and that can execute. I personally, I don't think I believe in that methodology because it's much harder in my perspective to pivot a team to a market or a business that works than for a mediocre team to ride a huge wave 
in a market that already exists. So that's, it's a different perspective that I have that I maybe share with you. How did you, how did you transition from team, team, team to focusing more on the market and the business first? Well, I'm not that smart. And I think, you know, I've gotten smarter by reading stuff by smart people. Probably the most important article that I've read, and one of the most important articles that's ever been written in venture capital was written by Mark Andreessen of, you know, Andreessen Horowitz fame. When he became an investor in 2007, he's a very, very opinionated human being. And he wrote a very aggressive article in 2007, the title of which is The Only Thing That Matters. So only a guy like Andreessen could write an article like, hi world, I'm starting to invest. And I already know the only thing that matters in investing. So it was classic, but, but it was brilliant because what he, what he said was, I'll tell you what he said, and then I'll tell you what I say. What he said was, and I'm paraphrasing, the debate is what's most important, market, product, or team? And he sort of then makes fun of all the VCs who say, we invest in team, we invest in team, we invest in team. And he establishes in his article, the only thing that matters, the most important thing is product market fit. If you have a crappy product, that's being built by five Nobel Prize laureates, we all agree that that startup is going to fail. So what's most important is that they built something that the market really, really wanted. And frankly, even if it's a 19-year-old kid from Harvard who dropped out and never did anything in his life, if he ends up building Facebook, well, that's going to take over the world. He doesn't say Facebook, but I'm just filling that in, right? So we would nod our heads and say, yeah, probably true. The counter is that what you said is that often the startup, what it, what it plans to do doesn't work and therefore, that's why you need a strong team to know how and when to pivot. Because if they're just a bunch of bozos who had an idea for a product in a market that ended up not working, they'll probably just fold up and die, whereas we really need them to keep going and try something else. So my, my answer on top of Andreessen is, yes, I agree that product market fit is more important than anything else. But why do we have to have the debate? Why do I have to choose? What's most important, Pr market, product, or team? My answer is yes. I'm managing other people's money. I'm not going to invest in a company unless I feel they have amazing market, amazing product, and amazing team. And I'm not going to sacrifice one for the other with other people's money because I think one's more important. I think all three are important. And as long as I see in one year, two or three or four that hit the bell on all three, then I will wait for those. And if I have one that's amazing team, but bad product and market, I'm not going to waste my investor's money on that. Even if it turns out to be, to be a success, I'm still going to hold true to my methodology that a couple times a year, I will find all three. And those are the ones, those are the pitches that I'm waiting for. The hanging curveball in the middle of the plate. I'm going to see it two or three times a year, and it's going to have a big yes to all three, team and market and product. So I think all three are most important. And, and that's why the counter, I think, uh, Howard Marks, who I mentioned before, has a great book called The Most Important Thing. And... A lot of people buy the book because they think Howard Marks has, you know, the most important thing. He's a very funny guy. And I think every chapter, I think it's like 25 chapters, every chapter starts off with the words, the most important thing is. And he's kind of making a joke that in investing, it's hard to say that there's one thing that's the most important. This is really, really complicated. There are a whole bunch of things that are really, really important. And I want to have all of them. So Howard Marks had 25 chapters. I have three. The most important thing is product. And then the most important thing is market. And the most important thing is team. They're all the most important. I don't want to sacrifice one for the other. What did it take you to get to where you are now? What things have gone sideways? What lessons did you learn that, that have influenced 
how you run your fund today? Well, failure, failure was hugely important. I failed so many times before this, but I, I learned, I still fail, but I learned so much from the failures that when I became an investor, A, I had learned a lot about what not to do or what not to look for. And B, I had a lot of empathy for my founders in the portfolio when they hit the rocks because I had been there. I could say to them, I'm not in some ivory tower. Like, I'm right there with you. I've been through this. Here's how I got through it. So that's sort of answer number one. The things that went sideways, who is it Munger or Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming without, without swim trunks? Like, my tide went out so many times that I was without swim trunks so many times that it was like not even embarrassing anymore. And, and so therefore, when I became an investor, I, I was hardened by a lot of prior failures. And I what still are some even, of those stories? Uh, you, you, I can't even begin to tell you. But, but just, you know, things where I, you know, I did business with the wrong person or I partnered with somebody because I was eager to do something but didn't, didn't bother checking them out or, um, or just or, or things that weren't anybody's fault. On the other extreme, where we did everything right and had a great team, and then the market crashed and took under what we had built. So really from extreme to extreme, like sometimes it's not anybody's fault. Sometimes it's your fault for not, you know, checking out the people the right way or doing enough research, anything in between. So th those are things that really steeled me, A, to appreciate when I did find a great opportunity, and B, to have a lot of empathy for the founders that I work with. But number two, and I really can't minimize this enough. And I, if she was here, I would give her a hug and, and put her on screen. My wife was incredibly supportive and I couldn't have done it without her because you, you need a supporting cast uh, or you need people who are psychologically strong around you when you take a risk or when you do something that is um, unlikely to succeed. A, you have to realize that it's unlike, like, unlikely to succeed. And B, you have to have a support system around you to pick you up when things are difficult and to encourage you to keep going, even if things look a little bit rocky. So I, I couldn't have done it without that kind of support from her and from other family members um, and motivated by a deep, deep desire to succeed because I had failed a bunch of times in prior things. So I think those two things were huge motivators for me. Yeah. So, so something I, I'd like to try and find a story in there, right? Like there's uh, to make it more real, you know, at, at the Right now, we're kind of talking surface level, like, yeah, there are problems and you failed. And, um, but, you know, I think to make it really real, it's like, wh what are, I find that investors, when they can believe and hear some of the stories and the, the tribulations that you've gone through, it makes it, makes one, you much, so much more believable and trustworthy because, you know, it's harder to share those types of things. Give us, give us a story of like, what's, what's an investment that went sideways or what was a thesis that you had that just like was wrong and how did that play out? Um, I'll, I'll give you two stories. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you're listening to this. Um, I have to be careful. There were, there were some, there were some personality things that were very strange. The very first startup that I started uh, was a disaster. And, and without getting into details, I didn't check out the people that I decided to work with. And um, they came back to bite us in a very big way. The startup failed within a year. And the investors that I had brought into that, I, I had brought in all the investors into the company. They trusted me. Um, I vouched for the company and for the team. And I was wrong. And they lost all their money. And I just felt terrible. 
And then a bunch of them invested in my next startup, which was kind of funny. Like I thought that they would never talk to me again. But in the second time, I, by God, researched everybody and really fell in love with the team and, and believed in what they were doing. And then the market in 2001, 2002, the bubble crashed. We weren't really a bubble startup, but, but we were affected by that. Our customers were affected by it. And our, our VC that was funding the company went under and took the company down with it. So that was like, again, from extreme to extreme. One was I should have known better and should have picked more carefully. And the second one was I picked everything perfectly. And then the market just you know conspired against us and, and took our investor down. So I guess the lesson was you never really know. Um, you have, just have to know what all the risks potentially are and just do your best to mitigate them. Whatever's in your power to mitigate, you should mitigate. Whatever's out of your power is just there to, you know, to scare you and, and loom large and you have to try to navigate and, and get around it. So I, I learned a lot about facing demons and facing risks, being able to articulate them, being able to recognize them and try to mitigate the ones that can be mitigated. I think those things have stayed with me to today. Um, but in terms of credibility and with investors, I mean, you know, we always, the, the quintessential question to a founder or to an entrepreneur was, okay, you really believe in this? Would you sell your house to do this? I sold my house to start my fund. I have to be careful when I say that. We were probably going to sell the house anyway, but we, we really needed to do something different in our lives. We had bought this house. It had appreciated in value. It was the only house we ever owned. And yeah, I, I you know, sat down with my wife and we said, uh, I said to her, this is the best opportunity I've ever seen. I'm going to start this venture capital fund. It's going to be really, really small. I'm not going to be able to take a salary from it for a while until I can raise more money. We need to go forward and sell the house. And we did. And uh, we just bet the farm literally on ourselves and on our ability to, to make this work. So it's a rare VC, I believe, who will tell you that they sold their house to start their venture capital fund. But I'm here to tell you that that's what we did. Wow. Thank you for sharing, Ben. Ben, where can, uh, where can people find you and learn more? So I, I'm kind of quiet. I don't, I, I like to read more than I like to, I like to intake more information than I, than I output. Um, I still, I'm still learning. So I, I don't feel I have that many amazing things to say. Um, but I'm, I'm reachable. Uh, you know, the website is jumpspeed.vc. I'm reachable through the website. Ben at jumpspeed.vc is my email address. I'll respond to an email. I'm, I'm not that kind of, you know, jerk VC who, who doesn't, who says, Oh, follow me. You want to reach me? Follow me on Twitter. Um, I don't tweet that much, but um, I'm reachable by email. Ben at Jumpspeed VC website pretty much says what we do. And uh, I do blog occasionally, although it's very rare. I like to read more than I write. I do occasionally write a book. So I have written a book. I'm writing another book, but those are more for fun. Those are fictional books that are trying to teach business con concepts. Um, I do claim to be, I once told somebody that I, I am, somebody was talking to me and I said, you know, you are in the presence of one of the top 10 business fiction writers in the world. And they said to me, how do you know that? I said, because there's only other eight, other eight other idiots that do what we do. So I have written a couple of uh, novels to try to teach business ideas just for fun. Um, and uh, I would say that's my major output. Um, otherwise, just reach out. I'll say hi. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben.